So I often tell people the good news is we're democratizing tech. The challenging news is we're democratizing tech, <laughs> which means you now can have eight to 12 people do what effectively only the CIA and KGB could do 40 years ago. And they're not all going to use it for benign or good purposes. And so being aware of that, it's like, how do we upgrade national security for that? This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Hey, what's up, everyone? I am your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. We're going to get a little technical today with uh, with Dr. David Bray. I'm pretty excited to have what's going to be a, like a really interesting conversation. So first off, thanks for spending some time today, brother. Well, thanks for having me, Tyler. And my goal is to make this the most lively one you've ever done. <laughs> Perfect. So we'll open up. Um, I think you and I have known each other. God, I came in place. How long? Well over a decade. decade at this point. I've had the benefit of, I think, getting to collaborate, follow a lot of your work. I think folks will probably know who you are, but let's give them the, the who are you? What are you working on? What's What's got you interested right now? Right. So I tell people I fell in my head at an early age and that made all the difference. But the slightly longer version, just have been fortunate enough to be at the vanguard of when tech that was done exclusively by our government was at the edge of getting commercialized. So in the 90s, I was crazy enough to be hired by the government when I was 15. First, it was doing computer simulations, and then it was doing small satellites that were classified that are now, you know, commercially, commercial technologies can do what they could do back in the 90s. Then in 2000, the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program, thought I'd do that for three or four years, was literally supposed to brief the CIA and the FBI weeks in advance as to what we would do technology-wise if a biotech event happened. That just happened to be scheduled for September 11th, 2001, 9 o'clock in the morning. So crazy times. 8.34, we pile computers in the cars, deal with the response to 9-11, don't sleep for three weeks. October 1st, stand on from high alert. October 3rd is when I briefed the CIA and the FBI, only as the first case of anthrax show up 24 hours later. So busy time. Later got a PhD, did postdocs, and raised my hand to go to Afghanistan in 2009. That was on SecDef travel orders to identify problems they didn't know were problems yet with the promise they could bury them if they didn't like it. So after about 45 days, I said, literacy is 20%, and that's if you're a male. Uh, how is democracy going to come here anytime soon? Just saying. But of course, you don't want to just bring problems. And so I said, you know, either A, special forces could offer aid to each of the 13 different tribes, because there are 13 tribes, or B, invite India and or, dare I say it, even China, which shares a border, to play a UN peacekeeping role. Of course, I got buried. But anyway, you know, I, I tried to bring reason to those environments. Later got to serve as the one nonpartisan that was reviewing all the R&D efforts of the intelligence community with six Democrats, six Republicans. Stephanie O'Sullivan, who was the principal deputy director of national intelligence, was a good CIA handler that she didn't tell me there had been three senior executives in three months not work out <laughs> until after I said yes. And so a year and a half later, we got bipartisan praise, which even in 2013 was hard to come by. Yep. So then I parachuted into another fun role at the Federal Communications Commission where they had nine CIOs in eight years. Partly because I like messes, because that's when you can actually, as a nonpartisan, get stuff done. Because now it's really about getting real. And so less than two and a half years later, we moved everything the FCC had, either to public cloud or private hosting. And this was 2015, which still, you know, government agencies still need to think about cloud. But then in 2017, there was a high-profile proceeding which I asked to use CAPTCHA to block bots. They said no, because if someone couldn't see and hear, they may not be able to file. I said, could I block obvious spam defined as 100 comments a minute? They said no, because one of those 100 comments might be real. So 
We saw 6,000 comments a minute at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m. We spun up more than 3,000 times the uh, normal cloud utilization we did to keep up with these comments. And when the chairman's office said, is this a denial of service, I was friends with Vint Cerf, and I came and I talked about it with him, and I came back and I said, not at the network layer. Everything's fine at the network layer. Nothing's been breached. But at the application layer, effectively, yes. What I didn't know was both of the I.O. may have had a small part in this. And that come 2021, after people said, where's your evidence? This didn't possibly happen. And some people threw some allegations that it was apparently made up. The New York Attorney General concluded that of the 23 million comments we got, which, by the way, most public coming proceedings, less than 0.6% get more than 10,000. We got 23 million. 18 million were manufactured from inauthentic sources. 9 million from one side of the aisle that had six companies do it. 9 million from the other side that may have had one or more teenagers do it. So only 5 million were real. But, you know, behind the scenes, worked with Vint Cerf from 2017 to 2020 on the People-Centered Internet Coalition, trying to counter disinformation, which even then was a problem, and then got asked to do another nonpartisan role with eight Democrats, eight Republicans, this time for the U.S. and our allies, so U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, but also unconventional allies like even India, Germany, and Japan. What could we do? Everything from cybersecurity, data and AI, supply chains, bio and space, uh, that report done in 2020 and 2021, which you know was a great time for bipartisanship, and was hand-delivered to the president with, we actually did get consensus both from the Senate and the House on May of 2021. And since then, I now work at the intersection of bio, space, AI, and trying to make sure open society still exists 10 years from now. So just a couple things to click into there, right? Just a couple, <laughs> a couple small. And who knows what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> right? I, um, I think one of the things that pulls a lot of that together is the impact on societies as it relates to trust and as it relates to sort of the, the societal contracts between whether they're tribes, whether they're different constituencies, sort of what that looks like. You know, as you take that career and it's bio and it's weapons and it's intelligence and it's disinformation, sort of everything – and you look at where we are now and you look at some of the recent EOs that have come out that have been around, you know, maybe artificial intelligence or cyber and trust. Where are you seeing things and not to not to sort of put it on the spot and say, like, hey, well, what's a problem we don't know is a problem yet, but kind of what's a problem that we well, don't know is a problem yet? Well, so I often tell people the good news is we're democratizing tech. The challenging news is we're democratizing tech, <laughs> which means you now can have eight to 12 people do what effectively only the CIA and KGB could do 40 years ago. And they're not all going to use it for benign or good purposes. And so being aware of that, it's like, how do we upgrade national security for that? It's important, I think, for people to get that, too, that like as we talk about the time horizon of a lot of these sort of like industrial age government organizations – I mean, I've got more power on my wrist right now or in my pocket than NASA had when we were sending people to the moon. Absolutely. And I think that is key. And same thing. You know, the great news is we used a $500,000 nucleotide printer to design mRNA vaccines and get them out really fast for dealing with COVID. But designing a vaccine and printing it out nucleotide by nucleotide is not different than designing a virus and printing out nucleotide by nucleotide. And if we could do that two years ago for $500,000, in about five years, that'll be $50,000. Now, I'm not one that, I mean, I'm an optimist, because I actually say, if you look back at the 1890s and 1900s, 
What if I told you there was a time where there was rapid technological progress, rise of corporations, including some really wealthy individuals that were influencers, there was a rise of disinformation. That's actually how news sold some of its headlines. We may have even gone to war with Spain over a disinformation event. And the Congress was actually a little bit more polarized than it is now. So in some respects, the same pattern's happening. We've got rapid technological progress. And this gets to your point about trust, which is open societies require us to be willing to be vulnerable to an actor we cannot directly control. That's how I define trust. Autocratic societies, however, operate on fear. You know, that, that you don't want to step out of line for fear of what might happen. You might lose your job, you might be in prison, and or you might get killed. But open societies require some semblance of willing to be vulnerable to an actor you can't control. And I think both, both as a result of technological progress, but also actors, domestic and foreign, that just want to sort of exploit the trends, they're taking out sort of those civic levels of trust at the very time people are both either overly fearful or overly angry about where things are going. And you and I know, I mean, if you want to make something go viral, make it angry, make it fearful, and not make everybody angry, make one group angry, another group angry in response, which is kind of like what 2023 feels like. So as you look, as you think about, I should say, this sort of fuel to maybe weaponize or to preserve. So I'll take the optimist hat. Sorry. Yep. Let's take the optimist hat. Let's say sort of what is that that sort of core ingredient that helps to to sort of preserve trust or to to rebuild. And I don't want to get all sort of like Ray Dalio and like, well, no, it's no, no. truth and it's data. It's <laughs> fact. Um, but I think you and I have oft spoke of the lack of appreciation at like the data layer in a lot of policy sort of EOs conversations on the Hill where we sort of like hand wave on like well, security and trust and transparency. And we ignore this whole layer that's moving there. Pop, pop into that a little bit. For sure. Me. So um, of course we've seen the recent executive order on AI come out all 110 plus pages, which I wish they had chunked it into smaller pieces, but it is what it is. It was one year into making, so they finally got it out. It doesn't talk a lot about data for various reasons. And I think that's important because we need to actually address that because, you know, at the end of the day, trust, it's been shown that people are willing to trust somebody if they feel like that person has, they perceive benevolence of that person or entity, they perceive competence, and they perceive integrity. And data underscores that. That if I don't think you're doing something legit or benevolent with my data, then whatever AI implementation I'm concerned with. If I don't feel like you're handling in a competent way, I'm worried. And so, and it's worth noting that's perceptions. I mean, they may be doing everything right, but if a disinfo story gets out or something else gets out there, then the organization, whether it be government, military, or for-profit, is kind of deep-sixed. It, it goes down. Yeah. So I think I would personally love to see us do sort of a unlearning of the last 10 years where I think we learned the wrong lessons about data. Uh, one was, you know, you, you heard the expression, which I, I personally dislike, which is data is the new oil. I'm like, no, 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 no. Oil, use it up, it's gone. Data, use it, it's still there. And if anything, if you involve the people associated with the data, the, the sort of stakeholders in the data, they'll actually identify the better data from the worst data. They'll actually create patterns that are, themselves are useful, and they'll actually sort of guide it. And I think for open societies, we've got to do more community stakeholder engagements on data, government, but also for-profits as well. It brings brand loyalty if you do it, but we've got to show a better way forward. Otherwise, we become autocracies of thought in bound data, which then eventually become autocracies in reality. So what does that mean for 
what does that mean for like the communications officer, the the PR specialist? And I, I go back to, I can't remember if it's clear and present danger. I think it is. Where Harrison Ford, they're trying to get ahead of a story. Oh, yeah, and he's like telling the truth. You're the best of friends. Like essentially yeah. take all the oxygen out of the fire. Yep. But what does that mean? Because you, you hinted at, hey, perception versus reality. And I mean, perception is the new reality, right? Like it almost doesn't matter yep. if you can prove whether it's true or not. Yep. You've now got these courts of public opinion and they're all of these different mediums and they're all sort of topically sort of segmented, but also agnostic at points. What does that mean for someone whose job it is, is to help communicate fact and instill trust and or preserve trust? Yep. So one, I have all sympathies for anyone in the communication space. Um, I, 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 I don't pretend to be one, but I would say you've got to be more on engagement versus communication. And I think this is particularly hard for government, but it's also true for privacy. I mean, when I was in Afghanistan, for example, again, literacy is 20% at the time. This was 2009, 2010. And yet somehow we think whenever any, like, let's say something goes off and we don't know exactly what happened. And the insinuation is somehow that the U.S. did something bad. And let's say we really didn't. And, and actually, I know in some cases we didn't, but that maybe a propane tank was detonated and they're trying to blame it on the U.S. government. Well, we come out with our fact-based approach and saying we're investigating, which is true. But we're not going to have an answer for another three to four weeks. And in the meanwhile, you've sort of given up that space for someone else to put innuendo in it. And rumor and gossip You've spread. seeded the narrative. Yep. Yeah. And so instead, what I said is you've got to have always on engagement even before something goes wrong so that when something is implied that maybe you did something wrong or something like that, it can actually be like, well, look, look at this longer history. And usually what will happen is they'll take it out of context or something like that. I mean, you know, I have a friend that likes to point out when you go to court, they remind you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Usually disinformation is two of the three, but they forgot the third thing. Um, and so being aware of that. The other thing, though, is I did an event about a month ago with the UN General Assembly, and it was five women and myself. And so I was more in learning mode and listening mode. These are women that are either had been in public office, are in public office, had run for office, and they talked about how the moment they even signal they're going to do anything in public, they get they get at least 10 times the amount of harassment, bullying. A lot of it is bot-generated yeah. than their male peers. And, and one of the things that, that was being raised is now with generative AI, images, video, and the trouble is when you're in that public office role, you can't come out and say that's not true because that just seeds the narrative. No one remembers it. So I think what we're going to need to do is actually, one, educate the public on this because if some respects it's just like we've democratized the technology to do disinformation, we haven't democratized the trade craft to recognize this information. And so figuring out what does that look like when most people don't have 50,000 analysts to analyze it for them. And then two, you almost need like how anyone can become an e a resident of Estonia, even if they don't live in Estonia. We need a network of people that say we stand for, I worry about the word truth because truth is really hard to define. Oh, yeah. But we stand for better information. Again, triangulating it from different sources. And so when something like this happens, the last thing you want to do is get in a war of true, not true, true, not true. The algorithm loves that. It amplifies that. What you really want instead is just push out better information and not getting into a flame war. Yep. But have that be a network of people that say, when we see a public official, whomever they are, getting what looks like a very rapid smear campaign or anything like that, figure out what you can do to sort of amplify better information as opposed to creating a flame war. So you allude a little bit to, to sort of when the bots come out and you know the challenge of sort of discerning what's true and what's not true. And then we talked a little bit about, hey, we didn't really address data 
in sort of the EO or in a lot of these sort of like, you know, AI security and trust. Talk to me about even some of the, the technological capabilities to understand. And it, maybe it's, it's precision and accuracy, vice truth, right? Which is a, an obtuse way for to say, like, let's talk a little bit about data poisoning yep. and about the ability to sort of shift perceptions, both at the human level, which we were kind of just getting into, but also at the sensor level and that collector. Where do you see in there? Right. So again, recognizing some of this is both born from my work with VentSurf and the People-Centered Internet Coalition, also born from my own experiences where we had that flood of bots and they were probably for political purposes, but they were trying to manufacture the appearance of a large number of people rudimentary. And, and, and now we know that, again, people can do this coordinated and authentic behavior, I think is the current term of art. So I may have met with a, in fact, I did meet with a government in Europe, I won't name the specific one, about two months ago. They're getting ready for, by 2030, it's going to be near impossible to distinguish between authentic and inauthentic actions in the public space. Now, that may sound depressing, but then you think about it, businesses had to deal with this forever. You know, the one caveat in business, if there is anything, is buyer beware. So I think it's almost like we don't want to make people so paranoid that they don't trust anything, but they've got to learn if something's manipulating your emotions or getting a rise out of you, that might be coordinated um, and it might be a purpose. And so let's get to data poisoning. So back in 2019, a fellow colleague, Ray Wong, and I, we wrote an article for MIT Sloan trying to think about people-centered approaches to neural networks. And it was recognizing that, yeah, neural networks are only as good as the data they're trained on. For better or for worse, unfortunately, with the current generation of Gen AI, that's essentially, like, we, that's opaque to most users. We don't know what they were trained on. And so that's a bit of a problem. But one thing we said is for companies and for governments that are using neural networks, generative AI, you've got to think about your trusted data pool what, what have you done to sort of vet that as being reliable? But the same thing is you can't just wait because, you know, if you just keep that data you've always had and you don't bring in new data, you're going to fall behind. You're going to lose relevance. So how do you bring in new data? What is the combination of human and machine processes to vet that? And what we recommended is a third data pool, which was intentionally the naysayer pool, yep. the examples of bad data. And again, data poisoning, it doesn't have to be necessarily intentional. It could just be you are bringing in data from from less than reliable sources or non-representative sources. I mean, we know, I mean, this is what some people talk about, how it's not representative of certain parts of the population. There was a company, I won't name the name, that was doing insurance using machine learning, but they were not representative of the entire society. And so actually the outcomes they were doing for certain parts of society were, were, were actually worse yeah. because it was bad data. And so I almost think like, just like how we have for companies, you have to talk about your financial balance sheets and CPAs. What is the equivalent of a data CPA, someone that's a certified data professional that actually governs and says, just like your money flows have been audited, yeah. how have you taken a look to make sure your data flows are representative and are actually accurate? That's an interesting concept. You know, as you, as you think about data flows, sort of authenticity or the right, the right sort of representation, so you're not getting some weird, like, either environmental or, or some drift of the model and whatever it's inferring or failing to, what does that look like from like a governance layer sort of as we're moving clearly into what's going to be a crazy election cycle? Oh yeah. Well, and, and so a couple of things is the time, like you said, we opened up with the idea that time horizons are getting massively crunched. I've heard one statistic, this is a statistic that it used to be the time between government making a decision with policy and executive orders and it having an impact used to be between five to 15 years. And now we're dealing with three to 18 months, which is 
incredibly challenging. And you just imagine, what does that mean for national security when your time horizon is now that small? And, and how many time horizons do you have to think ahead? And so a couple things is we're going to have to learn by doing. And that's scary for a lot of people because you're going to make missteps. And so one of the things I say is part of your, this gets back to the communication strategy. You have to say, look, we don't have all the answers. We invite people to point out things and, and you know, even be naysayers because we'll be better as a result. But we ask for your patience because if we don't do anything, we fall behind. If we wait until we have a perfect solution, we fall behind. So we've got to learn by doing. And so you have to be proactive in that message. The second thing is you have to recognize generative AI is really good at dreaming. And it's really good at dreaming, which means there's no nothing guarantees when you ask right now a large language model that what it's producing is fact or fiction. It may say it's fact, but it really doesn't know that. And in fact, if anything, if you say you're wrong, it may just flip on a dime and say, okay, you're absolutely right, I was wrong. So what we really need is a balance of just like how there's the creative part of our brains, we need the fact-checking part of our brains to then pull a sensor that's an Internet of Things device, maybe it's a signature in cyberspace, maybe it's a database that has been vetted by people. And what I almost see in the future is we're almost going to have this two-brained approach to AI. The dreaming part that maybe dreams 10,000 dreams, and then the part that goes out and says, what does the world actually say based on either economic data or observations from air and space or things like that, and then down selects from those 10,000 dreams to maybe only 20 dreams that best match reality. They start becoming like inputs to an ensemble. or Exactly, yeah. and, it, and it does this sort of cycle. And so, but right now, I think people need to recognize that, and, and actually there is it's a hard concept for government to understand. <laughs> well, <laughs> just, not just you government. Just, you just, one, yeah, I mean, like, at an individual level, you just did a little brain splitting there, but you take that up and you're like, yeah. all right, cool. What, five years ago, I watched Congress struggle to understand how Facebook and YouTube worked. and Their internet, I, it's a series of tubes, I heard. Yeah. A series yeah, of tubes, right? Like, so how do you get paid that they don't pay you? And now you're like, oh, great. This is how we're going to go. How, what do you say to, to a government that is yep. responsible for an increasingly, to your point, rapidly cyclical tech-enabled society governed by great folks? This isn't a jab at, at any sort of party or anything, but like fundamentally don't understand a lot of the technology. Does that just put more pressure on the staff? Uh, on the staff, but it also, I mean, again, recognize the, the, the best thing about open societies like ours that do have elected leaders is those elected leaders are a result of our votes. And I think most of the public is not asking for them to have knowledge in this space. Or their staffers, and so <laughs> we get that we get the we give them that we're sort of seeding <laughs> right. that space yeah. now. And then the other thing is, so I was part of a team that included um, Greg Treverton, who was former chair of the National Intelligence Council. This was back in 2018, 2019. We looked at the last 20 years, and we found that the number of nonpartisan senior executives were going down percentage-wise, and the number of political ones were increasing for for both sides of the aisle. And and that's not to fault them in the sense that I think both parties feel like things are getting crazy and out of control. And so they want their close friends. I mean, I saw this when, unfortunately, when 9-11 anthrax happened, whether you were at the FBI, whether you were at the CDC, the top leadership called in their close friends, but they hadn't practiced and rehearsed. Yeah. And so it's almost like at a certain point in time, you got to say to them, look, I know you got political pressures. I know you want to get reelected. But if you only call in your close friends, they're not going to have this bench depth. And so it's it's trying to negotiate that how do you trust nonpartisans? Because I, I dare say as a nonpartisan, I think we're more shot at than, than rewarded at the moment. It may take things getting ahead. The other thing is I try to remind people of Project Corona, which of course you know, but for folks who don't know, 1959, launch a rocket that would take photos of the Soviet Union. And this was 1959, so, so before Apollo and everything like that. 
and it would parachute a film canister that would be picked up by a helicopter or plane before it landed in the ocean or, or after it, it, had, it had like 24 hours before it had to pick it up. The first 13 rockets blew up. It wasn't until rocket attempt number 21 they finally succeeded. And of course, it helped win the Cold War, but it was later declassified in the mid-90s, bought by a company called Keyhole that was bought by Google to become the basis of Google Earth. So I often say, you know, government is innovative, they just don't monetize it, they leave it to others. But think about it, 1959, if we were trying to do that now, rocket explosion number four or five, even Musk has said, Elon Musk has said he'll be bankrupt. Um, Congress would probably be having hearings saying, waste the taxpayer dollars. And we would have lost this really key venture that was good for both national security as well as eventually for making sense of the planet. So the question is, are we at a, I don't want to use the word war fitting because that's the wrong word. Are we at a position that recognizes just how challenging this world is? And can we create a few safe spaces? You know, there are certain things you always have to have the trains run on time and everything like that. So you don't want to be risky. But if we don't have that adventure experimental spirit, both from the private sector and the public sector, that's death. Yeah. So as we sort of round into, and I'll frame this as loose as I can. Sure. As we sort of frame into, into the next year that is going to decide the next, not just that sort of administration cycle, but, you know, the, the 24 to 48 month sort of policy tale that, that sort of all of these have. And as you are watching sort of a rapidly changing geopolitical landscape juxtaposed with an ever shortening sort of tech cycle, uh, and you're going to get the hardest but structured question, but the hardest one is given all of that, right? The totality of change, the volume, the velocity, sort of all of that. If you could take a wand and do one thing, it works, it sticks, you don't have to caveat it at all. What are you doing? I would recommend as soon as possible announcing three national initiatives that involve data, that involves the stakeholders and AI to show the way forward. And at least two of the three would be civilian in nature. Maybe one is national security. One, uh, I'm going to give a shout out to an effort. I'm just saying this is one effort. Birth to three. It's the idea that everyone in the United States, from when they're born to the age three, should get the physical, mental, and emotional care they get. Right now, that involves filling out forms. You got to show up. If you're a single caregiver, you're probably busy already working one, if not two jobs. I've seen ideas to actually have that through SMS text messaging. So you don't even have to have a smartphone. Can you say, I'm looking to try and get the following services for my infant? How do I do that? I think that would show people that AI is not the Terminator. It, it is not how 2000, whatever. It is actually something that can be useful, but it also shows how we can do delivery of services to people in a more conversational mode, whether it's through text or voice or whatever like that. That would be the first one. Second one, use of spatial standards. And I know this sounds kind of crazy, but I've seen some efforts that use IEEE spatial standards to say everything on the planet has an XYZ coordinate. Yeah. And you can actually say boundaries to it. You can say like drones shouldn't fly through buildings. Cars shouldn't go off the road. And so begin to use spatial standards as a way to have AI, trust in AI before it's even processing something, as opposed to right now, we're often doing filtering after it's processed something. That would be interesting. And then the third one for national security, I actually think we need to be aware of how uh, war fighters and their families again, in an open society, are vulnerable to being targeted to disinformation, to despair. What happens if they identify that a, a service member's 
son is online and they can start to deliver information to create them to be frustrated or something like that, or they create a situation where there's anger and contention in the family. How does it impact our readiness? And so what is an open society's response where we still want to have freedom of speech and freedom of action, but at the same time recognize that our very data exhaust could be weaponized? Start with the warfighter and then expand that to others. Um, because I think we need to do that. I mean, you and I probably were in the OPM breach, just yeah. saying. Oh, yeah. You know, and that was just tip of the iceberg. And so, but again, pick three projects because I think the, the new way to do things in this rapid era is not to wait till you have perfect policy and perfect tech, but instead pick three things and actually have top cover from the Congress and the administration saying, look, we're going to learn by doing much like Project Corona. Yeah. I love that. I also think that's a nice, optimistic sort of lead into what's going to be, I think, a year where everyone's going to be inundated with just, to your point, things that are going to upset you and sort of get you get you fired up. So as we sort of leave the group, one, I want to thank you for taking a bunch of time today. I think these could always go, every time you and I sit down, it could be like a five-hour conversation. I'm fascinated. All of the stuff you get to work on, but your ability to coalesce that down and make that into not just sort of consumable nuggets of knowledge, but also practical recommendations. So on behalf of a whole bunch of who are going to be really excited listeners, thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Tyler, for all you do as well. And again, Optimus changed the future. So here's to doing the best thing we can. Yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Cheers. All right. What's up, everyone? This is Saved Rounds. Join me and my favorite technologist and second front compatriot, Enrique Odi, as we cut through the cacophony of the news cycle and reload your arsenal to annihilate boring defense tech takes. Let the fun begin. All right, going to talk a little bit coalition today. Going to uh, going to push in on some of the joint collaboration between U.S. and Australia and marine autonomy. Right, some of this feels like uh, an intended sort of byproduct of AUKUS Pillar One. But as we're looking at L3 Harris and Sentinel boats, to sort of bring joint capability and joint technology, and on the Sentinel 1100, I think it's a good. A good exemplar, a good proof point of sort of the what can be done to make some of these policies actually drive outcome and sort of into the the deeds, not words phase. Would be curious sort of your take on A, sort of the pop to bang in terms of like policy and funding to bring capability and sort of what what the broader implications are, especially as we think sort of Indo-Paycom, new sort of threat landscape bringing in some joint, ideally interoperable and autonomous capability. Yeah, I think this is fantastic. Like the move towards autonomy, especially in a coalition environment, I think address a, a lot of issues that we've been looking at that have been kind of holding up other weapons development for time, which is like, we got something new. We have something new, which is AI. We have something new, which is autonomy. It's like, it's in the ground stage. It's, in, it's evolving. So might as well start it from day one as a coalition effort. Because when you start talking about autonomy and swarms and drones, like if you horribly go into a war fight where our algorithms are not compatible with their algorithms, our systems aren't compatible with their systems. And so the fact that we're kicking this off is amazing. The other part is, is that I'm really excited that it's maritime. A lot of people didn't talk about drones from the airborne perspective. But again, I'm going to go back to Ukraine. I'll tell you, give me crap because I love talking about Ukraine. But look, if you have seen what they've done with their drones, their maritime drones in Ukraine... Uh, along with a few storm shadow missiles, have basically shut down the Black Sea to the Russians. And those are like drones that were not super high tech. You know, they're real recent design. So if we start looking at maritime and we start looking at places like the Pacific, could you shut down the Chinese fleet? 
with a bunch of drones. I think you could. And so I'm really excited about this maritime drone initiative between the US and Australia. It's fantastic. I also think, I think it's an interesting exemplar. I mean, in this case, right, Elthier Harris is a large sort of integrator defense prime, but I think it's a good reminder of the art of the possible in terms of corporate sort of partnering and collaboration and what we can do bringing companies from these different sectors. So we've got the policy lattice sort of up at the macro. We often talk about sort of cross-governmental collaboration, but the ability to bring sort of the learning and the capabilities from the markets that are maybe historically, geographically sort of fenced, I think is the sort of outlook we need and how we need to be building for the future. Yeah. And look, you and I have talked about this a lot. Like, it's not just about the startup new innovation ecosystem. The primes have something to bring to the fight. And when you talk about maritime, the ocean is a hostile domain. It is not very lenient on poorly built tech. Uh, and so bringing in the primes along with some of the startups to actually kind of drive up what this looks like, I think is the right way to do business. If not, we're going to get a lot of stuff that looks good on paper, pitches well on a pitch deck to VCs, but actually doesn't work in the ocean. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.